Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So if you do have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to look at the 12 uh, facts about salvation. Before we get into chapter 12, I want to read a portion out of chapter 4 to kind of set the stage. 4 verses 22 and 23. You don't need to turn there, it's right on the screen here. But the Lord is speaking to Moses and he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. This is at the very beginning when Moses went to Pharaoh to, to uh, demand, basically, the release of the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. Well, we know as we've been going through Exodus that Pharaoh would, re uh, would refuse just as the Lord said he would. And instead of freeing God's firstborn, which is Israel, the nation Israel, Pharaoh kept them in bondage. And as we studied, we learned that he kept them with, it was with rigor, which meant cruel, uh, merciless bondage. In fact, we also studied earlier, Pharaoh commanded all the baby boys born to the women of Israel to be thrown into the river and drowned. So he did just the opposite of what the Lord had told him. Well, after nine plagues, over a period of about 10 months, which included nine opportunities to repent and to humble himself, well, Pharaoh still hardened his heart and he refused to let the children go, the children of Israel go, excuse me. And so now we're at this point where this 10th plague, which is different from all the other plagues, this 10th plague, the Lord would strike Egypt's firstborn from, the, from, the, from Pharaoh all the way down to the slave in his household. Not the, not the Israeli, the, the children of Israel, of course. This event would finally secure Israel's freedom from bondage in Egypt. And as we're going through studying in Exodus, and I, I, I know I've mentioned a couple times, but I'm going to continue to, to just to refresh you that Egypt, topologically, <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word, Egypt is a picture or a type in the Bible of the world. And so this bondage... Uh, in Egypt or bondage to Egypt is also a picture or a type, if you will, of man's bondage to sin in the world. And so this death of Egypt's firstborn and the passing over, which we'll look at this morning, of the firstborn of the children of Israel, it's going to portray a vivid picture of the work of the coming Messiah. It's preparing Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And again, we'll also see how there's, uh, it's relevant and it's a picture of our salvation. Um, uh, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we're going to look at this, the 12 facts about our salvation pictured in the Passover. In fact, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, Verse 7, he said, For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So I'm not making this up, that the Passover is a picture of Christ. But even Paul said, Christ is our Passover who was sacrificed for us. So let's begin here. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of of the year to you. And here's the very first fact I want to point out about our salvation, and that's this. Salvation is initiated by God, not us. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. You know, the children of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt. They were unable to deliver themselves. They were in bondage. God at the right time, at the right place, raised up Moses to be their deliverer. And God called Moses. He prepared him for 40 years in the wilderness. And then God called him to go to Egypt to deliver his people. God's the one that initiated their deliverance. They didn't do it. Likewise, for your and my salvation, Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were still in bondage, unable to, re to free ourselves from that bondage, Christ died on the cross for us. 
1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Later on in that same chapter, verse 19, he'll say, we love him because he first loved us. So God's the one that initiates salvation. Then in there, in this verse two, it says, this month shall be the beginning of your months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So they were going by a calendar before this, but now the Lord says, we're starting fresh. This is, this is, wipe out that calendar. We're starting with a new calendar. This is going to be the beginning of months, the beginning of the first month of the first year for you. And so the Jews would have a new calendar. So to speak, they're, they're, the clock would be reset, so to speak. Well, similarly, Christ's crucifixion reset the world's calendar. You look at dates and you get, you know, such and such year BC or such and such year AD, before Christ or after death. I, I know there's a, there's a Latin term, but I, I'm not going to say that. Um, but now people, they don't like to say BC or AD because they don't want any kind of relation. To, you know, they don't want to have any, anything about Jesus. So now they'll say CE or BCE, which is common error or before common error. Era, excuse me. <laughs> that is an error, actually. Um, you know what's interesting? In during the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist in Daniel seven twenty five prophesies this that he's going to actually change the calendars. It says in Daniel 7.25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. He's going to try to change everything. So here's the second fact regarding your and my salvation. Salvation marks a new beginning. If you're here this morning and you, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you're tired of your life the way it is, you can have a new beginning by being born again, a very new beginning. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What a beautiful picture that Passover would just be the commencement of a new era for the children of Israel. And salvation is that for you and I. It's the beginning of a new life in Christ Jesus. Well, continuing on here, verse 3, the Lord told Moses, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth month, uh, excuse me, on the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So the Lord's commanding them to take a lamb for a household. And if the household was too small, then two households right next door, like next door neighbors, they could share that same Passover lamb. Now later on, once the children of Israel are in Canaan in the promised land, rabbis of Israel would make it a law that there'd be no fewer than 10 people could, could partake of a Passover lamb and no more than 20. So they'll actually set the, the exact numbers. But here, beginning in Exodus, there's a lamb for a household. In Exodus chapter 29, which I don't think we'll get to today, but in Exodus chapter 29, the priests were to offer a lamb for a nation. And then finally, when Jesus is born and begins his ministry, John the Baptist sees him coming to him, and he cries out to the crowd in First John, or excuse me, in John 1:29, he says, "Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world." the entire world. And that's fact three about your and my salvation. The need for salvation is universal. It's you know, everybody needs to be saved. There's no geographical uh, exceptions or boundaries that you know those people in that place, they don't need Jesus. There's no national exceptions. There's no cultural exceptions. There's no, it doesn't matter if you're rich, if you're poor, doesn't matter if you're moral or immoral. 
You could be the most moral person, but you still need a savior. You still need to be born again. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, young or old. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need a savior. The need for salvation is universal. And in order to effect a salvation, of course, there, there needs to be a savior, right? Well, we're told for God in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ was sent for the world. Salvation, the need for salvation is universal. The next thing I want to point out to you, notice the change in the articles in, of the, regarding the lamb in chapter 12. Verse 3, if you look at it, it mentions a lamb. A is the article, a lamb. Then you get to verse 4, and it talks about the lamb. And then finally, when you get to verse 5, it mentions your lamb. It's not just a lamb, it's not just the lamb, it's your lamb. And this is the next fact, fact number four about our salvation. You need a personal savior. The Lord Jesus Christ needs to be your savior. You know, it's not an even enough to know about the savior. I don't know if you've ever witnessed or talked to someone and they go, oh, yeah, I know Jesus died on the cross and you know, he rose again from the dead. And I'm like, okay, you know that, that's awesome. But is he your savior? So knowing about the Savior isn't enough. It's not even enough to go to church, even to come here. I'm glad you're here this morning. But even to come here this morning and to be around Christians and to be around everything Christian-like or religious, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter unless you have, unless Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. So what about the Savior? Well, looking at the lamb here, this Passover lamb, it says, your lamb shall be without blemish. The, the Hebrew word is tamim. And it means blameless or complete, innocent, having integrity. And if we are honest with ourselves, you and I are not blameless, we're not innocent. The verse I quoted earlier, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we're all sinners. You might say, well, you know, uh, I've acted innocently in this situation. Maybe, maybe you were put into a situation, you're like, I'm completely innocent in this situation. Or in this area of my life, I've never blown it. You know, I've never sinned. I've, in this area of my life, I'm blameless. Well, tamim, that Hebrew word, without blemish, it also means complete with respect to time. In other words, to be sinless, that means you have to always have been sinless never once committed a sin in all areas of your life. In other words, you might say, well, I didn't do that sin, but you know, okay, there's the sin that I did. Well, James says in chapter two, verse 10, for whoever should keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, and he's guilty of all. If you break the law, it doesn't matter which law, you're a lawbreaker. If you sin, it doesn't matter which sin, you're a sinner. You might say, well, you know, I'm not a terrorist. <laughs> You know, I'm not a thief. I'm not as bad as others. It would almost be like the Jewish people. They're, they're, they're expect, inspecting their Passover lamb. And then the guy looks at his lamb and he goes, well, you know, my, my lamb's got like a, it's pretty much white wool, but it's got this little black tuft of wool. But at least it, it's got all four legs. My neighbor's lamb, and it's got three legs. We call him tripod. You know, he just walks around and stuff. Um, you know, we, we could justify it here. But listen, Tamim Without blemish, it also means complete or entirely in accord with truth and fact. So there's a standard that it's measured against. And I got news for you and for me that standard isn't me, and it's not you. It's not our culture. It's not, it's not our generation. That's not the standard. The standard is God's word. And so I could ask any one of you, have you ever at any time broke any one of the Ten Commandments in your life? And you say, no, well, you just did because <laughs> you're a liar then because you have. We all have. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so this lamb needed to be without blemish, spotless. He says, on the 10th of this month, Every man shall take a lamb for himself, or take for himself a lamb. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. There's a couple reasons, I believe, why the Lord had the children of Israel keep this lamb for four days, from the, from the 10th until the 14th. First of all, they would grow attached to it. 
They would take it in. It was almost like a family pet. A lot different than going out into the pasture and just grabbing a lamb, bringing it, and slaughtering it. You know, there's, there's, that, there's not that attachment necessarily. But if you had brought Buffy or whatever you want to call the lamb, you brought it into your house and you're, you're giving it, you know, milk and your feet and it's a little cute little lamb and it's, you know, rubbing up against your kids and your kids are playing with it and, you know, you grow attached to it. You grow attached to it. It'd be like a family pet. And then four days later, you take that, that pet and you sacrifice it. That little innocent little animal that your children love. They want to take, they want to go to bed at night with it. You know, can I sleep with the lamb? You know, can it be in my bed? And you take that one and you slaughter it. See, it would take an emotional toll on the family. It would be the sacrifice of something of value. And I think that's important because we need to understand that the cost of sin is high. And, and, and the price paid was precious. Christ's Christ blood is precious. His sacrifice, it means a lot. Also, the second reason why I think they had to keep it for four days was that it would give them four days to really inspect this, this lamb, to make absolutely sure there's no blemishes, no spots, no, nothing wrong with this lamb. Interesting. Jesus, on the 10th of the month of Nisan in AD 32, he entered Jerusalem during that final week, the Passover week before his crucifixion. And so for four days, from the, from the 10th of Nisan until the 14th, he was there in Jerusalem being examined by everybody, being tri the Pharisees were trying to trap him and trick him up and, and, and you know, he was there in full view of everybody so that they could see that there were no blemishes in him. And in fact, nobody did find any blemishes in him. When Jesus was crucified on the cross with thieves, two thieves, one on each side, one of the thieves crucified next to Christ said this, said, this man has done nothing wrong. The thief said, this man's innocent. There's no blemishes. Judas, after he betrayed Jesus Christ, remember he brought the money back to the temple and said, I've betrayed innocent blood. He's innocent. The Roman centurion, when Jesus died, he cried out, he said, truly this was the Son of God. It wasn't just an ordinary man. This was the Son of God. And even Pilate himself, he said, I find no fault in him. So for those four days, nobody found any fault, any blemish in Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, who was crucified for you and I. Verse 7 says, They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So the lintel, it'd be that top horizontal cross piece above your doorway. And of course, the, the, the post would be the vertical side posts. And it would be a picture, just like Christ's blood was you know, spilled on the cross that he was nailed to. The cross section would be where his hands were nailed to. They would be, that would be stained with blood. The vertical section where his head and his body and his feet were up against and his feet were nailed to, they would be stained with blood as well. Verse uh, 8, Then they shall eat, that eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and whatever remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Here's the next fact, fact number five regarding, regarding our salvation. In order to be saved, we must partake of Jesus our Passover lamb. See, this lamb was to be roasted in the fire. You couldn't boil it. You couldn't eat it raw. It had to be roasted in the fire. Well, in the Bible, fire is a picture of judgment. Jesus, our Passover lamb, took our judgment, the judgment that was rightly due you and I for our sin. He took it upon himself. And then the Lord commands Moses and the children of Israel 
Well, actually, excuse me, Jesus says this. Jesus said to the people around him in John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, if you do not eat of my body, you have no life in you. Jesus said, you, you need to eat of my body. And, and at that point, he lost a lot of followers because they're like, man, what's he talking about? Cannibalism or what, you know? And, and they, they didn't understand that. Of course, now after the resurrection, we do understand, right? We understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying we have to receive him into our heart. We have to invite him into every aspect of our life. We make him the Lord of our life. In other words, our complete light. There's every part of every aspect of our life Jesus is to be Lord of. We're to take him in. They were also to eat it with unleavened bread. That'd be bread with bread without, without yeast. So it'd be non-leavening or whatever you want to call it, unleavened. I guess that's a better word for it. Um, and the reason why the children of Israel were to eat, it, uh, eat unleavened bread was because they wouldn't have time. Because that night they were going to be delivered. They wouldn't have time or opportunity to let the bread rise. So it's just you just make the dough, don't put yeast in it, and get ready to take it with you. Now, leaven in the Bible, or yeast in the Bible. It's a picture of sin. Jesus told his, his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That would have probably been hypocrisy, I'm, I'm guessing the main thing. <laughs> Later on, Paul would write about the level of uh, leaven of malice and wickedness. And then later on, he would also say, uh, speak about our feast that we partake in, the unleavened bread of sincerity in truth. In other words, the believer in Christ were to forsake sin, the sin that held us in bondage. We're to forsake that sin. We're to turn away from it. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from our sin and coming to Christ in sincerity and in truth, being honest with ourselves and with the Lord. They were also to eat this lamb with bitter herbs. It says, with bitter herbs they shall eat it. And of course, that would be an ongoing reminder of their bitter bondage of slavery in Egypt. And you, you guys, you all know the, the, the story, the crucifixion stories from the Gospels. In Matthew 27, as Jesus is on the cross, verse 34 says, they gave him sour, uh, sour wine min mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. That gall, it, it, had, a, it had a deadening effect, kind of like a numbing, almost like an anesthetic, so to speak. And, and it would kind of, ease his suffering on the cross. Proverbs 31.6 says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Well, when Jesus realized what they were giving him, he refused to take it because he didn't want to numb that suffering that he was going through. For you and I, we need to fully realize the seriousness of our sin and then to grieve over it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Then once they ate this Passover lamb, it says, Yet uh, you shall let none of it remain until morning. In other words, they were to partake of this Passover meal in one sitting at one time. Not a little bit here, and then, you know, save a little bit for later because, you know, you might get hungry on the road or, or you know, uh, I, I know some people, you know, that their eating habits, they just graze throughout the day, right? And, and it's probably, it's better. I, I pig out throughout the day. So, you know, but some people, they graze, they eat just a little bit here, a little bit there, just, you know, and, and they maintain their weight there real well. Um, I love reheated leftovers. Some people just, you know, I had a friend, his wife would make a meal and if there was any leftovers, she had to get rid of it because he would not eat leftovers. And I love leftovers. In fact, Teresa, usually she'll make an extra batch of something and then she wants to make it for another meal. She'll have to leave a note on it saying, don't touch. It's for something, you know, because I'll eat it if it's there. But, you know, and that's fine for food. But it's not fine in our, regarding our faith in Jesus. We're not saved a little bit here, a little bit there. You know, we don't take, it's not a partial thing or it's not a 12-step thing or nothing. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You're saved once. You're not saved every other week, you know. You're saved once. 
It says, thus you shall eat it with the belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Fact number six about our salvation, our salvation is to be forward-moving and forward-looking. What do I mean by that, forward-moving? You know, this is a beautiful thing about coming to faith in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit invites us to be saved where we are at in our lives. There's no preconditions. There's no, well, first clean up your act and then you can get saved. Or if you get rid of that, and then I'll save you. No, no, the Lord Jesus Christ will come to us in our most despicable, lowest points in our life. There's no preconditions. He accepts us where we are at. But he doesn't intend to leave us in our bondage. He wants to set us free from those things that have held us down. For the children of Israel, he was getting them out of Egypt. They were leaving once they were delivered through that Passover celebration. They would be moving out that same night. After salvation, you and I need to move out too. We need to move forward. We need to follow Jesus Christ. We need to start growing in our faith, not staying where we were because I mean, he, we, he takes us where we're at, but he doesn't want to leave us there. So he starts doing that process. of It's called sanctification. You're sanctified when you come to faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you were to die, you accept Jesus Christ, you're to, your next breath was your last breath, you, you, you're sanctified. You're going to heaven. But then there's also the process of sanctification that occurs in our lives as, as the Holy Spirit's doing that work and it's trying to make us more like Jesus. And so we're to be growing. We're to be, and how do you grow? Well, you start growing by reading God's word and applying his word in your life. And so we're to grow in our knowledge of him and our love for him through reading the word. Paul, or I won't say this Paul, I believe it was Paul, the writer of the Hebrews, but I'll just, I'll be, I'll play it safe. The writer of the Hebrews says this, um, in Hebrews 5, he was talking to the Hebrew believers, and he starts talking about Melchizedek, and he's like, man, I don't think they're getting it. And so in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, for by, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We're to grow in reading the word. We're to, we're to use the word of God. What do I mean by that? We're to apply it. As the spirit speaks to us through the reading, and you respond to it. And as you do that, you're going to grow. And as you grow, you're going to become more and more like Jesus Christ. So we're, our salvation is forward moving, but it's also forward looking. Because they were to eat the Passover with their bags packed, like they were ready at any moment to walk out the door. They were, they were to be ready to move out to their new home in the promised land. When you and I, and we're going to be celebrating communion this morning, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So when we're participating in communion, you know, the, the, the first Passover was celebrated there in Egypt. And after that, they were to do that every year throughout their history. And they were always to look back to that one night when Jesus Christ delivered them. And when you and I celebrate communion, that's exactly what we do. We look back to that time when Jesus Christ saved us for our, from our sins, to the time when he paid the price for us on the cross. We look back, but we're also looking forward. Because we're looking forward to the complete redemption when he comes to return for his bride. And so we're forward looking. And so we're not just looking back. We're, we're moving forward and we're also looking forward. That should be the goal of the traje trajectory of our life should be, man, I'm, I'm heading for heaven. And, and everything that every decision we make, everything we do, it should be in light of eternity. What, what, what value does this have in light of eternity? That I'm, what decision does, how does this affect eternally or eternity verse 13 now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when I see the blood I will pass over you and the plague shall be not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt so this day shall be to you a memorial 
and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a stranger or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. So this Passover, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a week following the Passover celebration, it was to be a perpetual feast observed yearly by the children of Israel. And that is a picture of the Christian life subsequent to salvation. That's what that is a picture of. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 5.8, Therefore let us keep the feast. Now we don't do and we don't keep the, I mean, I know some believers, you know, they, they, observe the Passover in, in a sense, you know, they, they want to kind of honor some of the Jewish traditions and stuff. But that's not what Paul's talking about. That feast that we're to keep, it's, it's a daily thing. Daily surrendering our life to the Lord, daily walking in our salvation. It says, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So it's an ongoing thing for you and I. And then Paul said in Romans 6.12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your body that you should obey it in its lusts. We're to get rid of those sins that are holding us down. We're to walk in holiness. The Lord says, be holy for I am holy. And the interesting thing here too, there was no work to be done during the feast except what was necessary to prepare the feast. And I think that's significant too. Because you and I were saved by grace through faith. There's nothing you and I can do to earn our salvation. You could be the most moral person. The, the, you know, you, you, you recycle all your trash. You walk people across, you know, you help people cross the street. You're, you're the best person. You vote. You know, you do all these things that moral good people should do. You, not, you will not earn salvation through that. You're not saved through works. You're saved by grace through faith. And as we come to Christ in faith, we're now to rest in that salvation. In other words, we're to rest from trying to earn our righteousness through self-justification because you'll never make it. All our righteous deeds, the Bible says, like dirty rags, filthy rags. The, Hebrew, the, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. There therefore remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. You know, the thing is, and you probably all get this, right? I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. But you know, once we are saved, it's so easy to slip back into legalism, trying to perfect ourselves through our own efforts. The Galatian believers were starting to do that. They were starting to fall back into Judaism. They had been saved by grace through faith, but they were starting to fall back into, into keeping all the rituals of Judaism. And Paul had to, had to confront them. In Galatians 3.3, he writes to them, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? In order to continually walk in the Spirit, continually yielded to the Spirit, growing in the grace and knowledge through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're to rest from our works. And that's fact seven regarding our salvation. It means rest from our works. Jesus Christ paid the price. Jesus Christ did it. It's done. That's why when he cried out on the cross, it is finished. The price was paid once and for all. Well, moving on here to verse 21. 
Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. This is fact number eight regarding our salvation. Salvation is only accomplished by the shed blood of, atoning, of an atoning sacrifice. See, the Lord looked for blood. He looked for blood to be, that was shed. And the blood sacrifice was the basis for sparing the children of Israel from the judgment, the, the destroyer that was coming through to kill the firstborn of Egypt. Salvation wasn't accomplished by praying or by fasting or by a good work. It was accomplished by, the life of, by a life, an innocent life given on behalf of others. In, that, in their case, it was an, a Passover lamb. For you and I, it's accomplished by Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sins. Verse 24, and you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised that you shall keep this service. It shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the children of Israel, Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. This is fact number nine about our salvation. Salvation gives us history. <laughs> what do you mean history? After they had done this, and they, they're, every year they're, they're celebrating the Passover, Eventually, their children or their children's children, the generations to follow, wouldn't remember that they were slaves in Egypt. They go, well, why are we doing this celebration, Dad? And then that was an opportunity for the father to share all the story about how the Lord God delivered the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And you're in my salvation. We have a story. Each one of us has a story. And it's, of course, it's his story, right? It's, it's the story of Jesus Christ's work in our lives. We all have a testimony to give. Doesn't matter if you were once an ax murderer and now you're a born again believer, that's a, that's a testimony. Or you grew up in a Christian home and you can't, you know, and, and as far as you know, you've always known the Lord Jesus Christ. But at some point you made a conscious decision to follow him, to make him the Lord of your life. You have a story as well. We all have a story. And it's, of course it's his story. And so salvation gives us his story. Verse 29. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the first, firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Their deliverance, finally, it's complete. It's not, you, you know, leave the children behind or just, you know, don't leave the land. You can worship in the land or, or you know, leave your livestock behind. And finally, the deliverance is complete. And it's interesting here. At this, it seems at this point, finally, Pharaoh is humbled. Finally, he's a broken man. And he says to Moses and Aaron, he says, bless me also. And he doesn't just allow them. He drives them out of the land of Egypt, just like the Lord said that he would course we'll see later on that his heart is still not fully surrendered because he's gonna we'll see that next week when we look at it he's gonna come back for him but right now he's letting them go he's, he's driving them out of here verse 33 and the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste 
for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. You know, if you think about it, they were slaves for... probably around 400 years or maybe a little bit less, but for a good portion of the 430 years they're in the land of Egypt, they were slaves, unpaid slaves. And now the Lord's paying them back. They're getting back pay for all those years of slavery. Paul says this though, in Romans 8, 31, 32, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You know, we're saved. We have eternal life. I mean, that, that alone, we should always be joyful because we're saved. We're going to heaven. I mean, that's, that's like, there's nothing better than that. But on top of that, the Lord Jesus Christ he wants us to have an abundant life. And I'm not talking wealth and prosperity and, you know, health, wealth and prosperity, name it and claim it. You know, I'm not talking about that. But he wants us to live a full life. And he's given us so many blessings above just being saved. We are, we actually can walk in victory over the sins that once held us down. Not by my strength, not by your strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says this in Romans 8, 37, excuse me. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not just a conqueror, we're more than conquerors. And fact 10 is that, just that. Through salvation, we are more than conquerors. Verse 37. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. So when they left, we're told that there was 600,000, about 600,000 men. So if that's just the men, we're talking probably a minimum of 2 million people that left Egypt. And we're also, we also see that there's a mixed multitude that went with them. So it wasn't just the children of Israel that left during this time. Maybe there was some intermarriage. Maybe, maybe you know, with the Egyptians. And so there were some mixed, mixed families, blended families, whatever you want to call it. You know, maybe they, they came along also. But I think probably the main reason is the Egyptians saw that their land was devastated. And they saw the Lord's hand and the Lord's blessing on the lives of the children of Israel, and it appealed to them, and they wanted to follow. And for you or my, our lives, it should be like that. Our lives should be attractive to those around us when they see how you and I, we deal with suffering, you know, because we all suffer like everybody else does, but we have that peace that passes understanding. The world can't understand that. We have a joy, even when things are not, you know, we, we have reasons to maybe not be happy, but we have joy that transcends happiness. And the world sees that, man, and they look at the world, they look at all the junk around, they go, man, that's an attractive life. I want what you want. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing pictured here. It says, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went up from the land, went out from the land of Egypt. Remember, they were slaves. Now it's an army. I love that. It's an army now prepared for battle. And God's going to be doing a work in the children of Israel as he's leading them out. But the thing I want to point out here, fact number 11, 
is that you and I were saved because God is faithful to his promise. What a blessing. God is faithful. The Bible tells us, Romans 10, 9, and 11, says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be. There's a chance you will be. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. God is faithful to save us. What a, what a blessing. And so the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt was to be commemorated throughout their generations by observing the Passover. They still celebrate it today, although they don't have a, they don't have a temple to sacrifice a lamb, but they still uh, they, they observe the Passover even to this day. Well, just like the Jewish people observe the Passover, you and I as believers, our salvation, we observe it or we commemorate it throughout our generations by observing communion, which again, we're going to do shortly here. Verse 43, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, uh, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten, and you shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. And of course, you think of Jesus on the cross. You know, when, when, when uh, Pilate was told that he was already dead, he was like, so soon? And so then he had the Roman soldiers go. They were going to break the legs and, and uh, break the legs to speed up the, the, the dying process on the cross. And they broke the legs of the two thieves next to Jesus. And they came to Jesus. He was already dead. Interesting. Not one of his bones would be broken. It says, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it. And he, shall, and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised persons shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. So others were invited to eat the Passover, but there was one law for the native born and for the stranger. They had to, so to speak, enter through the door where the blood was shed. They had to observe the Passover the same way that the children of Israel did. John 10, verse 7, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And this is the last fact, or fact number 12. All are invited to be saved, but there's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. So just summing up what we talked about this morning. First of all, fact number one, salvation is initiated by God not us. Fact number two, salvation marks a new beginning. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Fact number three, the need for salvation is universal. You could have somebody, you could be sharing with somebody and say, well, I, that's good. I'm glad it works for you, but I, I don't need it. No, no, you do need it. <laughs> they just don't realize it. Fact number four, you need a personal savior. It's not enough to know about Jesus. or even It's not even enough to believe what Jesus did. You need to appropriate his sacrifice for your sins. You need to invite him into your heart to be your personal savior. And that ties into fact number five. In order to be saved, we must partake of Jesus. You need to invite him into your heart to be the Lord of your life, your savior and Lord. Fact number six, salvation is forward moving and forward looking. Are you, are you growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you becoming more like him? And are you looking forward to his return for his church? Because I believe it's coming soon. I really do. Fact number seven, salvation means rest from works. You don't have to earn Christ's love for you. He loves you. He loves you today. 
doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus Christ loves you. God loves you so much that he died for you. Even when you were in your worst of conditions, he died for us. Salvation means rest from works. Fact number eight, salvation is only accomplished by the shed blood of Christ. There's, there's no other way. It's just there had to be a blood sacrifice because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus Christ paid that price by shedding his blood on the cross. Fact number nine, salvation gives us history. We all have a testimony. I encourage you to share it. Share it with people. Let people know what the Lord's done in your life. Fact number 10, through salvation, we are more than conquerors. We have every reason to be joyful in this life. We should be the most joyful people on this planet because we're born again. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Plus, he's given us so many things, uh, blessings abundantly above that. And he gives even the gifts of the Holy Spirit to his church. We're blessed. We're more than conquerors. Fact number 11, we're saved because God is faithful to his promise. When you die, when that happens, you've put your trust in Christ Jesus for your Savior, I guarantee you, you're not going to get to heaven there'll be a no vacancy sign, right? <laughs> Sorry, or we change the rules, or that your salvation's outdated. No, God is faithful. He's faithful. Just as he was faithful to his promise to the children of Israel, he's faithful to you and I this morning. In fact, that's one of the things that, you know, I love, I love studying about the nation of Israel, the nation state of Israel today. Because through all these years, they, 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 they were in obscurity for so many years, and, and now they're a nation once more, and God is once more working with the Jewish persons. He's faithful to his promises to Abraham. And for me, that's a comfort, because if he's faithful to them, he's going to be faithful to me. He's going to be faithful to you, too. We are saved because God is faithful to his promise. And finally, everyone's invited to be saved, but there's only one way, and that's by through Jesus Christ, by repenting of your sin in sincerity and truth, acknowledging that you're a sinner, that, that, that you are a sinner, and believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Repenting of them, that means turning away, turning away from them, and inviting Jesus Christ in your heart to be your Lord and Savior. That's how you're born again. You believe and you receive. Why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word this morning. I thank you for the beautiful picture that we have of salvation as we looked at the Passover celebration. Lord, that deliverance that you performed for the children of Israel. Lord, you have done it for many of us in this room, and Lord, you want to do it for everyone in this room, Lord. You died to deliver them from sin and from the consequences of sin, which is death and, and eternal destruction. And so, Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice that you paid for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated.